Hey friends, this episode of The Fellow on Call is not meant to be used for medical advice and is intended for educational purposes only. Patient information has been modified to ensure privacy. The views expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers. Enjoy. Welcome to another episode of The Fellow on Call, the Hemonk podcast. We're coming at you from Rillo University Medical Center. I'm Ronak. I'm Vivek. And I'm Dan. And in today's exciting episode, we continue our discussion about non-small cell lung cancer, but this time we have a fantastic guest with us, Dr. Jane Yanagawa from uh, the Thoracic Surgery Division at UCLA Johnson Comprehensive Cancer Center um, in LA in California. Um, And she also happens to be a part of the NCCN, which listeners, you know we love the NCCN, um, and it was just an awesome discussion. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really cool to hear a unique perspective from a surgeon. And Dr. Yanagawa gave us a lot of really good pearls and tips and really gave us an interesting perspective as some as somebody who sits on the NCCN, which you'll hear her talk about, there's a lot of different institutional practices for the treatment of non-small cell lung cancer. And she gives us her take after, as being somebody who's in the room hearing from all the different perspectives. But still, it's really fascinating to know that there are so many different ways to approach this complex, ever-evolving disease. Yeah, and I think that was, it was really good of her to mention that, uh, you know, throughout the discussion, she brings up, you know, this is how we do it at our institution, recognizing that there's a lot of different ways to care for patients with thoracic cancers. And I'm just, I thought it was a really rich discussion. I thought she was a a great discussant to have, and uh, I'm just so happy she was able to join us today. And listeners, you know, we we apologize. This episode's a little bit longer than our normal ones, but it's because the content is so good. We came out of this learning so much more about the way we treat resectable lung cancers and how we determine if a lung cancer is resectable, how do we determine if if a patient is a good operative candidate. And those are really important when we think about planning our regimens as as oncologists. And I also think from from my perspective, I mean, going to be able to go to tumor boards for thoracic oncology in the future. And, and hearing the surgeon speak, I have I feel like I'm going to have so much more perspective about why they're talking about the things that they're talking about and the reason that they're making the decisions that they are. Um, so, you know, I had a great time and I'm really excited for our listeners to be able to, to uh, enjoy this episode. So guys, uh, how about we go ahead and roll to the road to the show? So listeners, we're so excited to have a guest with us today, a very special guest, Dr. Jane Yanagawa from the UCLA Johnson Comprehensive Cancer Center, who also happens to be on the NCCN panel for non-small cell lung cancer. So Dr. Yanagawa, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you guys for having me. Um, so if, if, you, if you would, would you like to introduce yourselves to our listeners and tell us where you are, what you do? And we always love asking our guests a fun fact about themselves. Well, I'm a general thoracic surgeon. I um, grew up locally in Los Angeles. I went to Baylor Medical School for College of Medicine in Houston, um, actually at that time, Dr. DeBakey was still alive and, you know, cardiac surgery there was like the most incredible thing you could possibly do. I went to medical school thinking I was going to be a geriatrician, definitely no plans at all to be (laughs) a surgeon. In fact, I thought surgeons were total freaks, like violent people and what's wrong with them. But then I realized when I when I did my rotation as a medical student, you know, I picked it as my first rotation because everyone always says like, 
do your first rotations, whatever you're definitely not going into. <laughs> um, I just realized actually, you know, these patients are so vulnerable and what they really need is like someone who is a great communicator and um, a nice person. So I actually thought it was an amazing thing to do. And, um, you know, having uh, my uh, cardiac surgeon be my mentor, um, I initially thought I was going to be a cardiac surgeon. And I went to UC San Diego for my general surgery residency and uh, discovered that I was really interested in thoracic oncology. In the middle of my residency, I did two years of uh, lung cancer research uh, with my current mentor here at uh, UCLA. I went back to complete my residency and then did my fellowship in cardiothoracic surgery at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Um, that was obviously a really amazing experience, really shaped me both like technically and as a doctor. Then I came here and I've been here for, I think this is my 10th year here at UCLA. I'm the interim chief now. And, um, you know, we see a huge variety of cases, but obviously lung cancer is a, is a big part of our practice. That's awesome. And, and, you know, as I mentioned, we also happen to notice that you are on the NCCN panel. And, you know, we tell our listeners to go to the NCCN as their first step whenever they're thinking about different types of malignancy. So what is it like behind the scenes? What is it like to be on that panel? I mean, it's really fun. I've only been on it for a couple of years um, and some of the other people who have been on it for many, many years. And, you know, there are a lot of giants on there and to be a part of the conversation is really awesome. And it's definitely extremely multidisciplinary, you know, and I learn a lot from the other disciplines during that, uh, those, those meetings as well. It's uh, one of the things that was surprising to me is that, you know, you imagine, oh, a group of experts get together once a year or something like that. But, you know, things are changing so much in lung cancer that all year, you know, we're actually communicating and talking about updates that need to be made. And so it's actually a really up to date uh, kind of constant process. So I thought that was kind of uh, a cool thing that I, I never imagined when I was someone who was just reading the NCCN guidelines. Yeah. I do think it's like a thoughtful process. And it, it's nice that it's not only multidisciplinary, but it covers institutions across the entire country, like every region. And to hear people come in with their different perspectives from those backgrounds is is really nice to see. Yeah, it's, it's I, I feel like as EMOC fellows for us, it's, it's like, that's what we want to do one day, you know, is to sit in the room and talk about, you know, how do we think about approaching management and, and helping others really get a framework for it. So yeah, it's awesome to hear too, that it, that it's multiple conversations throughout the year, so many different regions. So yeah, that's, that's amazing. It's actually to the point where, I, I mean, I think this is such a fun thing about it, um, where, you know, it gets down to like trying to decide what are the best words to use, like wh which words would, you know, help someone who is coming from this kind of practice, you know, think about this situation or, or how would this help, you know, help someone who is struggling to get like insurance authorization for this or like how does this, you know, open, you know, pathways to involve patients in clinical trials or, you know, all those kinds of considerations that you wouldn't think would have to go into it. I mean, those things come up. It's very interesting. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful. Well, again, thank you so much for taking time to, to be here today. You know, 
as you know, we've been in our in our lung cancer series, and we've we've had a few episodes now on talking about the fundamentals of of you know treatments with chemotherapy or radiation or a combination of of two. And uh, one of the things that I think we did, at least I think we did well, was really explain to our listeners that kind of the first step that we really need to be thinking about when we approach a patient with lung cancer is is there cancer something that's amenable to surgery? And so we're very curious to hear kind of your perspective um, as being someone that's involved in those sorts of conversations. So if it's okay with you, I do have a case for you and maybe we can use this case to initiate our conversation. Sure. Okay, that sounds good. Thank you. So the case is of a 55-year-old male smoker who presented to his PCP with a 20-pound weight loss. He had a CT of his chest, abdomen, and pelvis that showed a 4.2-centimeter right middle lobe mass. Further staging with a PET and CT, sorry, a PET CT and brain MRI showed no evidence of other disease. An EBUS showed negative mediastinal staging and a biopsy of the mass was consistent with lung squamous cell carcinoma. So we've also discussed that smoking cessation and PFTs are vital prior to surgical evaluation. For localized uh, node negative or N1 disease in smaller tumors like this patient, how do you go about determining whether a sublobar resection would be an adequate technique? Well, in in this case, um, I would not consider a sublobar resection because it's, uh, I think, over four centimeters, right? Mm-hmm, exactly. um, and where was it located in the middle lobe? The right middle lobe. Yep. Middle lobe. Um, the middle lobe is actually only two segments, so it's practically a segment. A segment. It's the smallest uh, lobe of all of them. So in that case, I would, I would do a right middle lobectomy. I would offer that as as the standard of care. And you know, when would I consider doing a segmentectomy? You know, there was that recent trial that suggested that cervical could even be better for these peripheral, small, less than two centimeter lesions with a segmentectomy compared to the lobectomy. You know, the gold standard was always considered to be lobectomy uh, with better overall survival compared to anything that was sublobar. But this new study that specifically looked at this more modern scenario, right? Catching a lung cancer, usually subsolid, really small. Could there be a chance that you'd have better results with a sublobar resection for that? And so this new trial does suggest that that you could. From a surgeon's perspective, the things that you consider are always partly anatomical. You know, like I mentioned, I, I probably wouldn't do a, a segmentectomy for a middle lobe lesion just because a whole lobectomy is only two segments. And then for a different lobe, it really depends on the location of the nodule. You know, you could have a nodule that is um, technically in the, you know, technically not just specifically in one segment. So if, if it was something that was in the superior segment of the right right lower lobe, um, like smack in the middle, nowhere close to where you would be cutting, you know, when you create your segmentectomy, then that would be an ideal, you know, case to recommend a, a sublobar resection, a segmentectomy. Um, and then, but if it's something that like is at, right at the margin between two or even three segments, potentially something that's essentially, even if it's small, but central. In that case, I would not compromise in, you know, the, the outcome with um, a segmentectomy. In general, if anyone had any signs of lymph node involvement, then we would also consider that to be more advanced and not consider a segmentectomy for that. To the point where actually, even if someone had mediastinal staging and a PET-CT and everything that suggested that, oh, it's just localized tumor, 
two centimeters even like in that case where it's in the superior segment and it's in the perfect location, you know, I could, I would potentially perform a segmentectomy before concluding that case. I would actually request frozen section evaluation of every single lymph node um, in addition to the um, staple margin before finishing. Because if any of those come back positive, even an N1 lymph node, then I would assume that the patient would benefit from a, a lobectomy. And then I would just go straight into a completion lobectomy in that case. Um, so those are some of the things that we think about when it's uh, a segmentectomy versus lo lobectomy. It's usually the location. And then if we, we know that it is truly like a very early lung cancer. Going along the lines of that, you know, one of the things you talked about was when you look at the frozen section in the OR. Can you can you talk to us a little bit about you know when you're when you've uh, ha, when you think about getting adequate margins? Um, you know, we you can read oh we we read a lot of stuff that says two centimeter margins are are ideal in many of these tumors depending on the size of the tumor. Are you determining the margin status right there in the OR, and that tells you if you're going to cut more? Or how, how does that exactly work? Usually we don't need to check that, you know, because if you're doing an anatomic resection, then it's, it almost doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter where the tumor is, right? If it's somewhere in the middle of the lobe and you just remove the entire lobe, you know, it's usually for a wedge resection or something like that, where it, you know, the, the extent of the margin might be more, more relevant um, with a segmentectomy because the anatomy is that you have to cut through the lobe essentially to separate it from the rest of the lobe. There's usually not like a natural fissure there. First of all, you never know exactly where you cut through. It's not that precise, you know, and so the margin might be important there. It, we don't usually make our clinical decision based on the, there's no pre-described um, requirement for what the margin has to be. It just has to be like a negative margin. And it's the most relevant in situations where it would change your management. You know, like for example, if it was, if you're doing a pneumonectomy, I mean, what more are you going to do essentially? So, you know, maybe in that case, it's not as relevant, but for a segmentectomy where you could definitely do your completion lobectomy, um, that would be an extremely relevant thing to do. Yeah, that, that makes so much sense. So segment when you're cutting out less like a segmentectomy, you want to make sure you don't need to do a completion lobectomy because, and that's a time that you'd really want to know the frozen, it, it, in the OR, know for sure, I'm not missing a lymph node, even if that PET was negative, that EBIS with biopsy was negative, we have to be certain because we don't want to make, you know, miss the, something that, that really would have changed management up front. Exactly. Especially all those N1 lymph nodes are not things that are sampled prior to the surgery. So, you know, all of that would be would be really relevant to make sure they got the best operation. This is all assuming that the patient is a candidate for any of these surgeries, you know, because sometimes we choose to do a segmentectomy because they can't tolerate more than, that, you know, more surgery than that. You know, if, for example, someone would have required in order to get like a negative margin, they would have required a pneumonectomy, but they're not fit to tolerate a pneumonectomy. Maybe that's a case where, you know, a positive margin actually means, you know, adjuvant radiation or something like that. I could yeah, just add sure. one other thing for yes. that because I started talking about like some of the pre-op workup, you know? Um, so like that is such a, I think that always to a lot of people is so mysterious. Like what is this pre-op workup, you know? So to make decisions about things like how much lung tissue are we going to, 
is going to be considered acceptable for a patient, you know, you know, everyone knows about the pulmonary function test, but like, how exactly do we use that information? And what are different ways that we can use that information? Um, you know, the, there's a predicted post-operative uh, value that that we look at. So, you know, if, uh, if someone comes in, and the main numbers we use are the FEV1 and the DLCO, um, the percent uh, of those on the pulmonary function test. If we were to decide to do an operation on someone, in general, they're considered a surgical candidate if we predict that after the resection that we're planning to do, it leaves a predicted post-operative FEV1 or DLCO that remains above 40%. That's not super strict. Sometimes we'll do it for people who will dip lower than that. Of course, the numbers aren't like always that accurate. Sometimes you can repeat PFTs and they might be different on different days. Um, but, you know, part of it is also just how to really appropriately counsel a patient about what their risk is for surgery. Um, so, so that is one important criteria, but there are other criteria, you know, when we make those predictions of how much a certain amount of lung tissue being removed might affect the um, PFTs. It's not just based on the anatomy. Oh, middle lobe is about 15% of all of your lung function. So we just subtract, you know, we just say, oh, what is 85% of whatever your DLCO or FEV1 is? But what if they have COPD? And what if it's heterogeneous in almost all of their diseases in the upper lobe and the lower lobe for some reason? And their most functional lobe is their middle lobe. So maybe you can't just assume that. Or maybe it is, um, maybe they're starting FEV1 is like 40%. And you're like, well, he's not a candidate, but the, it's an endobronchial component of this squamous cell. That happens, right? Um, and the middle lobe is completely atelectatic, um, in which case you would imagine, well, actually, he would tolerate it because if we remove that, it probably doesn't even reduce any of his, his uh, lung function. Helpful ways to use the PFTs in any situation where there might be abnormal anatomy, like in the example of someone with an endobronchial lesion or um, COPD is to get a BQ scan. So sometimes that's a part of our preoperative workup. Another thing that people never think about is they're always thinking about lung tissue when we talk about a lung resection, but it's not just lungs. It's also like there's, we take blood vessels, you know, and that can really change your pulmonary arterial pressures. And so, for example, especially if you're considering doing a pneumonectomy or something like that, you would uh, definitely want to get um, a 2D echo to rule out pulmonary hypertension because, you know, you can imagine if you suddenly take half of the lung and divert all of the blood to the other side, that that patient is definitely going to have like great heart failure and, um, you know, major or serious like physiologic consequences to that. Um, even the fact that people are going to be on single lung ventilation during the procedure, that's a very technical thing that people don't think about. Um, you know, having severe pulmonary hypertension, they might not even tolerate that in order to like do the lung resection. You don't really want to find out about that during the surgery. You know, it, all, all those things are things that people don't think about in terms of like determining someone is a surgical candidate, but there's like so much other stuff that you can consider um, in the risk assessment. The thing about the smoking, like in this case, um, I mean, being a current smoker is believed to increase your risk for complications by like 60%. But um, wow. the fact is, you know, you can tell someone stop smoking and then all of a sudden 
like for the whole month afterwards and into your surgery and after your surgery, they're having like the worst mucus production possible. Because the fact is right when you quit smoking, it actually makes it a lot worse. And and that can be the case for six months even. I, I obviously never tell patients to continue smoking, but you know, it's something to keep in mind when you're doing your like risk assessment and your counseling, you know, that's just because you quit smoking doesn't mean that your risk is going to go to you know, a normal person's. And that brings up another factor, which is like this new concept in surgery that you can really improve outcomes with something called prehabilitation. You know, that includes, you know, making sure, you know, frail patients or even pre-frail frail patients, for example, get the best chance to have a good surgery by working on their fitness beforehand. That could be a referral for, you know, uh, physical therapy or even just giving them a plan for like walking and improving their lung function, like a pulmonary rehab kind of thing, um, working on their nutrition, if they'll, they're malnourished, especially like COPD patients, maybe, you know, uh, wouldn't be uncommon for them to be malnourished and especially our older patients and, you know, just making sure basic things that they're like stress is under control and that they're getting enough sleep and all those things obviously affect how they do after the surgery. That's huge. Cause you know, I think the mystery of when the surgeons on tumor board, you know, you know, we're having these discussions and surgeons like that, can't resect the, you know, and it's really interesting to me that, that, and they always talk about the PFTs and it's always mentioned. And especially as a fellow, I'm like, I have no idea what's happening right now. So this was incredibly helpful and it makes a lot of sense. You know, just think about anatomic things too, the endobronchial lesion and well, if their FEV one's 40%, but they also have a collapsed lung, then maybe you can take out that collapsed lung. That's, you know, that, that's a really good perspective that we, you know, uh, I'm definitely going to internalize that one. You know, I love this concept of prehabilitation too. And that's something I would often mention to, to patients in a different sort of way when they'd be starting chemotherapy. I'm like, well, for the next few weeks, you know, really work on your nutrition, really try and get up and moving as much as you can because um, you want to be in as good a shape as possible to, to get through this through this thing we're going to do to you. Uh, I think that's that's a really rational approach. And, you know, one thing we've, that we hear about sometimes in these tumor boards is a VATS approach or a, a sort of less invasive approach, I guess. Can you tell us a little bit about that and when, when that's kind of feasible? Yeah, well, I love talking about that because the worst is to be on call in the hospital and then you get a consult. Oh, we want to consult you for a VATS. Uh, which we get all the time, actually, for like patients who need a decortication or whatever for their empyemas, because that's like consulting us for a pair of scissors, you know, like that's <laughs> that's not the operation. That's just like the the approach to do an actual operation, which might be a washout or decortication decortication or something you know vats is just literally the equipment that we use but you know you're right there's a huge movement to go to minimally invasive surgeries especially for lung cancer you know especially in an older population to be as minimally invasive as possible it's associated with shorter length of stay less pain um, fewer complications and things like that and so we pretty much always consider starting with with some minimally invasive approach, you know, some things that might make it more difficult to do, do um, and complete a procedure uh, minimally invasively would be previous surgeries, you know, for example, someone who had any extensive previous surgery, like a, another lobect a previous uh, lobectomy or something like that, or really bad history of infections, like if they also had bronchiectasis and pneumonias every 
four months for their entire lives. Another thing is, you know, we talk about uh, single lung ventilation. You know, when we do um, surgery on the side of the surgery, they're only being ventilated on the other side. So when we do that, you can get away with it not being great single lung ventilation when you have open surgery because you can kind of just like squash things out of the way. But with minimally invasive surgery, it's really critical that you can achieve real single lung ventilation because then you won't have a safe um, exposure to carry out the whole surgery. You know, nowadays, when we talk about um, minimally invasive approaches, especially for lung cancer, it really is video-assisted thoracic surgery, or there's also robot-assisted thoracic surgery. And so those are two different approaches. In general, I think that most cases, it doesn't make a difference which one you use, but there are some significant differences. So, you know, for example, with VATS equipment, the incisions are totally different than where the robot equipment goes. I mean, every every surgeon does their incisions potentially a little bit differently. But, you know, for example, the way I do VATS surgery, it involves three incisions. The incisions are one sort of like in the axilla, one that's the lowest possible in sort of the mid-axillary line for the camera port, and then one retracting and stapling port that's more posterior. But for the robot, I might use five small ports um, that are all lower on the chest. And uh, when would that be really relevant? Well, for example, a patient who has had a previous breast cancer and maybe has uh, had a lot of radiation, has a lot of radiation change in their axilla or something, you know, then in that case, I might prefer to do robot just to have ports that are lower and not in the axilla. Or for a patient who has like breast implants, you know, and maybe using the robot ports that are lower might be less risk of rupturing their breast implant during the time of the surgery. It a really important difference, I think, is that uh, for patients who are really obese, like where they carry so much of their weight on their actual chest wall, the chest wall might be like this thick. And if you imagine with a VATS equipment, you make an incision and the instrument goes here, there's no wrist articulation. So all the movement of the instrument happens at the chest wall, like you have to move it at the chest wall. But if their chest wall is this thick, you may not be able to move it. And that might be a situation where bats would be difficult to do. The robot, on the other hand, with a chest wall this big, you, as long as you can get the port in, once the instrument is in, it has wrist articulation. So you can move around and it doesn't impede necessarily the movement of the instrument, depending on how big the chest wall is. Um, the major downside of um, the robot is that you can't, there's no tactile anything. So, you know, for example, if it's a patient who you suspect that it's a lung cancer, but you're going to go to the OR and try to just find it and wedge it and get a diagnosis and, and then do the therapeutic operation based on frozens. If it would require palpating it to be able to do the wedge re resection, you couldn't really do that with the robot because you're not at the bedside. No part of you is like in the patient's body for that. So pros and cons to the two different approaches, but in general, you know, whenever we can, we try to do the procedure minimally invasively. Sometimes if the tumor is so large, or if you're doing like a pneumonectomy or something like that, where ultimately you have to make a bigger incision anyway, just to get the thing out. Um, in those cases, it doesn't really make sense not to just do a thoracotomy. Yeah, I hadn't even thought about the, uh, the needing true lung decompression. I mean, you know, folks who operate in the peritoneum, I guess, have it a little easier there. You can insufflate that as much as you want. You can't. The chest cavity has a ribcage around it, so you really only have so much space to work in. A lot of surgeons don't even understand this, actually, because um, when we do VATS incisions, we don't use true ports. They're just like 
smaller incisions mm-hmm. between the ribs. Mm-hmm. But when we use the robot equipment, we, we we actually insert true ports. And so we do use insufflation actually to help compress the lung tissue because you don't have the normalization between atmosphere and, and the pressure in the chest. Um, in those cases, though, you, you have to really watch out and make sure that your OR staff understands we're not operating in the belly where the abdominal wall is all stretchy. Um, the rib cage being uh, rigid means that if you go up to the normal, you know, 15 millimeters of mercury that you use in the abdomen is essentially a tension pneumo. You could right. have a patient codes from, you know, initiating the insufflation if you don't adjust for the fact that you're using it in the chest instead of the abdomen. Well, one of the questions that that I had when we were, we've, we've had previous episodes talking about mediastinal staging with an, an EBIS, and we had a, a, a pulmonary uh, uh, pulmonologist come on and talk about what it's like to do EBIS and, and the you know, nuances of that. The other thing we we know that there's also mediastinoscopy. I just wanted to get your perspective. In what scenarios is a mediastinoscopy warranted? And you know, if you've already done an EBUS and had your staging, when would you say, "Hey, I also need to do a mediastinoscopy"? So, I mean, mediastinoscopy, I think, is uh, required after an endobronchial ultrasound result if it's negative, but it's very suspicious. Otherwise, you know, either like really enlarged and PET positive, and it's a very suspicious central large tumor. If it's that critical, then I would repeat uh, a mediastinoscopy, mediastinal lymph node dissection. Um, you know, I, I think in general, it's important to have some, you know, method of mediastinal lymph node staging. Uh, the chances of having mediastinal lymph nodes involved if you have like a, that, you know, example where it's like a really small peripheral lung cancer is so small that with a completely normal um uh, uh, PET scan, um, and and the fact that at the time of the surgery you're going to be collecting all of those lymph nodes anyway, at least from the you know the side you're operating on. So really, only missing the contralateral side, it's not as big a deal. Um, so you know, I think that that a negative EBUS, even if it's like non-diagnostic in that case, I wouldn't necessarily feel compelled to do a mediastinoscopy to follow up those results. There was this. I, I don't know if the interventional pulmonologist talked about it. There's this interesting trial that they did where every patient um, underwent immediate stenoscopy. And then immediately, no matter how that went, um, or no, vice versa, went endobronchial ultrasound biopsies and then underwent immediate stenoscopy. So every patient had both procedures and they compared the results. And essentially there was no difference in like staging or survival. But if you look at it really carefully, then you realize actually a far majority of those EBUS um, needle biopsies were non-diagnostic, which to me just suggests that it's, hard to biopsy normal lymph nodes. Um, so, you know, I, I think uh, a lot of the clinical staging is really important and it's important to follow up with it in sort of like sequence. So um, I, I would repeat a mediastinoscopy for a very suspicious uh, lymph node that was negative on EBUS. And, and one of the things you mentioned in, in that uh, discussion there was the idea of uh, mediastinal lymph node dissections ipsilaterally for, for these tumors if you're doing the resection. I read in when we were reading in NCCN, they also talk about systematic lymph node sampling. Can you tell us what that means and what the difference is and, you know, a little bit of if or if that's even important? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really important because it, you know, um, adequate lymph node staging definitely impacts your survival, you know. Um, so I, I think it's really important, but it, it is confusing to read about it and talk about it because there are so many terms. So in general, a systematic lymph node 
sampling refers to uh, sort of like an organized way of uh, sampling the lymph nodes. The alternative sampling is is a simple essentially a systematic lymph node dissection. Um, the difference is that that's where you remove all of the lymph node tissue between the boundaries of that known lymph node station. You know, a sampling means that you're taking it, um, you're not necessarily taking all of the um, lymphatic tissue in that area. But the systematic part means that you're not just only collecting whatever lymph nodes you had to collect to do the surgery. You know, I mean, the fact is there's a lymph node between at the bifurcation of every single structure. So even if you didn't know anything, I, most likely you had to remove some lymph nodes with your case, but it should be that you are essentially touching all the relevant stations, you know, uh, getting a sample from all the, the relevant stations. So, you know, they say at least like one hyalur or three mediastinal from each side, but, you know, essentially you're trying at least looking at all the different stations. So on the right side, you know, that always includes the right paratracheal lymph nodes, um, the subcranial lymph node, level seven, um, inferior pulmonary ligament, level nine, maybe a parasophageal, you know, level eight. Um, and then it would also include um, a hyalur lymph node, level 10, or an interlobar, level 11. And then the segmental ones at uh, level 13. Um, so in general, like a sy systematic lymph node sampling for a right-sided surgery like this guy's right middle lobectomy, you would be trying to find a lymph node at least from each of those stations. On the left side, it's different actually because you can't reach the left paratracheal lymph nodes because of the aortic arch being there. So you end up getting the level five and level six lymph nodes. And then the left side on all the other ones are about the same. But um, that's a big difference between left and right and why potentially this isn't written anywhere, but potentially immediate stenoscopy and um, uh, just in, in general, like in EVOS or invasive mediastinal staging might be even more important for a left-sided tumor than a right-sided tumor if you think about it. Because no matter what, after the surgery, you're going to get right paratracheal lymph nodes from the right side, but you're not definitely going to get left paratracheal from the left side. Yeah, that that's critical. And we talked about in our last episode, actually, when we we're talking about treatment of lung cancer, that once you have N2 disease or these single-digit lymph nodes, it really changes the game on how we think about survival in these patients, how we think about treating these patients. And uh, in the next case, Ronak, do you want to start us off with the next case that, that deals with N2 disease? Yeah, absolutely. So we're just going to change the case just a little bit. So, you know, the patient still has a 4.2 centimeter right middle lobe squamous cell, but this time he's also noted to have invasion of the chest wall. Um, and so remember, listeners, we previously discussed that when we generally think about situations like this, we may need to talk about induction regimens for tumors that invade other structures and definitely for the single digit lymph nodes like an N2, uh, like an N2 disease prior to surgery. Um, and so some of these patients may need to be treated with definitive chemo radiation. We understand that this is always in the context of a multidisciplinary uh, tumor board discussion, and there's many different options. But as a surgeon, how do you determine if a patient is appropriate for resection in a case of invasion um, that involves another structure like the chest wall or something like a proximal airway? Um, well, it, it's depends a little bit on the preoperative workup also, you know, so you can resect a huge amount of the chest wall and reconstruct it with either just mesh or mesh it with methyl methacrylate or, you know, some version of a chest wall reconstruction. Um, but of course, who would tolerate that? Probably someone who um, doesn't have already an infection in their chest, right? You don't want to put a foreign body in an already infected um, area. 
Also, maybe someone who has really poor pulmonary function tests where having, you know, abnormal chest wall motion might take them beyond like a borderline case to like a non-surgical case. Um, uh, but usually there's not a limitation to the actual um, chest wall resection, you know, because you can, you know, take stuff and then reconstruct it essentially. Um, if you think about the example, for example, uh, an extreme example is like a pancos tumor, right? Because um, that's in such a critical area. You know, if, if it's way down here, level, you know, five or six or something like that, then you can easily take it. The only thing you have to worry about is sometimes if it's close to the tip of the scapula, you don't want to leave a defect where the tip of the scapula might like get become entrapped. But at the at, you know, for a pancos tumor, there's subclavian vessels there, there's brachial plexus there. And in general, for most surgeons, um, there's the spine even, you know, for some of those cases. Um, so you might have to reverse like uh, involve neurosurgery to remove part of the vertebral body or the transverse process or something like that. Those things can go. Um, even we will accept potentially transecting like T1 and maybe having a little bit of impact on your hand, but we would, for example, never consider taking C8 in that area and giving someone like a claw hand. Um, you know, there might be an extreme situation where if it's involving the subclavian vessels that that could be reconstructed with like vascular or cardiac surgery or whoever is uh, doing that at your institution. Um, other things that could be potentially resected, you know, the airway, you know, it depends, again, like what kind of surgery they would tolerate uh, from your preoperative workup. Um, uh, the um, pericardium definitely can be sacrificed and reconstructed. The diaphragm also can be resected and reconstructed. Um, but you would not, for example, consider uh, resecting the esophagus um, because it cannot be res resected. I mean, that's actually an anatomical thing that you can't do a segmental resection of the esophagus based on its blood supply. Um, so invasion to the esophagus is essentially um, uh, something that we could not, uh, we would not consider resectable. Uh, you know, if you're getting into like more extreme situations in general, we consider it not to be resectable if it's invading the aorta, um, but technically, I guess. There are probably people who have it and reconstructed it, but um, you know th those are are different than something like re you know resecting a phrenic nerve that's involved or diaphragm, you know, pericardium and chest wall. So this is really good to know because you know uh, it's not necessarily that it's impossible to do, and perhaps when um, you know when we talk about this from an oncology perspective, it's more talking about this maybe being a more high risk feature as a, uh, a sign that this may come back in the future, but simply from a, I shouldn't say simply from a surgical perspective, there are ways like something invading into the chest wall, for instance, isn't necessarily a contraindication. It just makes the surgery a little bit more technically difficult for, for you as a surgeon and for the patient to recover from. Yeah. And I think it's really important um, in terms of your, counseling of the patient about like what their risks are and what is acceptable to them, you know, for their quality of life and things like that. One of the questions that I had, we, we talked about different induction approaches in our last episode, talking about the new neoadjuvant chemo immunotherapy, chemotherapy, and chemo radiation as, as options for induction regimens. And, and in that episode, we really talked about how if you have N2 disease, a single digit mediastinal lymph node, let's say, that Oftentimes, some of those patients are resectable, some of those patients are not resectable, and there's a multidisciplinary conversation that occurs to say, hey, should we try some sort of an induction approach, re 
reassess and then consider on with surgery. For, from your perspective as a surgeon, when should we consider an induction approach? Is it any patient with N2 disease, for example, or any patient with invasion of other structure and N1 disease? Is there some framework that we can start to think about? Well, first of all, I think this is something that's going to be changing like every single year, practically from now on. There's so many trials of neoadjuvant targeted and immunotherapies for um, surgical disease 1B to 3A, you know? So I think all of these things could be changing like at any moment. But in general, I do think it's unacceptable to know about N2 disease and go straight to a surgery. I mean, that that should definitely get uh, induction therapy. In terms of whether or not, I mean, it's almost institutional based on how patients get treated, you know, like some some institutions feel very strongly that those patients, it's not proven surgery is is beneficial and those patients should get definitive chemo radiation, you know, now plus uh, immunotherapy. Um, At least at our institution, we do believe in offering surgery for people who are good surgical candidates if they have a good response to induction therapy. And so our patients usually will get, um, well, you know, if they're on a trial, they might get something else, but generally only chemotherapy, um, only because there is added risk when you add the radiation. Um, And it's sort of, you know, the purpose of radiation is for local control, but you're planning on local control anyway with your surgery. So in general, we just do chemotherapy. Technically, another benefit, I mean, should probably check this with the radiation oncologist, but, you know, if you do decide that you need radiation after, like, let's say somehow like it's not resectable or you have a positive margin, at least now you have like a full dose of radiation, not only like a boost left. In terms of determining if someone is a candidate with their N2 disease, it really is partly just preoperative workup and their risk assessment. And it's also you know, there's such a difference in someone who has like a single station and two disease versus like bulky multi-station and two disease, you know, and uh, there was a recent survey of like NCCN institutions to see what people's management was. And it's shocking, like for N2 disease, like the management is like so different everywhere. And so I think it's it's still a very controversial topic, but at least in my practice and, and my colleagues here, that if someone has, uh, does not have progression of disease with their induction therapy, that they would go on to surgical resection. And that is a situation where we would do this, uh, a systematic lymph node dissection. Um, so if you have proven uh, lymph node involvement we wouldn't just do sampling in that area. We would try to remove all of the lymphatic tissue in that anatomic area where the lymph node was involved. You know, it's something I hadn't really thought of, um, having that sort of radiotherapy in your back pocket uh, in case there is a a positive margin or something after an induction chemotherapy regimen. Um, But in terms of thinking about chemoradiation up front versus chemotherapy alone up front, how how does that affect your ability to operate? Do you see any sort of sequela from radiotherapy when you're operating, or is it too soon after the radiation generally for that scarring to have set in? Uh, well, we almost never operate after the radiation because we almost like never let that happen. But um, yes, we you, you, it definitely adds to the scar tissue. You know, in a scenario where we always, you know, are radi- uh, operating after radiation, like for esophageal cancer, you know, mm-hmm. when they get chemo radiation and then have surgery, um, we always aim for this perfect window between four and eight weeks where, you know, it's uh, cooled down enough, but not turned into scar tissue. Um, It definitely can increase your risk if you go out longer uh, for the scar tissue to heal it. But it's not just the risk isn't really 
for the surgery. I mean, even the chemotherapy adds scar tissue and, and makes the dissection more difficult. So that's not, it's not really the concern for the time of the surgery. It's really time, you know, concern for healing, you know, especially uh, for a pneumonectomy or something like that. Like if someone's had radiation there and then they need a, a right side pneumonectomy where already the most dreaded thing is like a bronchial stump breakdown. Um, you know, that would be a situation where probably no one would really rush into doing a surgery after the patient's had, had uh, radiation. Out of, out of curiosity, have you um, done a surgery on any patients after the introduction of like the newer data about uh, chemo IO therapy in the new adjuvant setting? I'm just curious to see or hear rather what it looks like uh, once you cut these patients open. Yeah. So, you know, after the immunotherapy, it does seem like there's more fibrosis or, you know, scarring even in the hyaline, but not to the point where it would, um, uh, well, it hasn't been shown already um, in, in the trials that are already existing that that there's additional operative complications or anything like that. So uh, I think just based on observation, most surgeons will say that it does seem like the hilum is like a little bit more inflamed. Maybe some of the lymph nodes are a little swollen, um, that maybe the dissection is a little bit harder, but not to the point where it would translate into necessarily more complications. That's pretty fascinating to me. It almost seems like the IO is adding something there, which which really fits with you know the higher response rates in path CR and and that that's that's really fascinating hearing that when you cut it open, there's actually something happening in the hilum, which is which is fascinating. Yeah, um, I've seen that even you know for patients who had another cancer and got immunotherapy for that cancer and then had to have like a lung resection for a lung cancer, you can see it there too. I mean, it's not even because of the treatment of the cancer; it just is. I mean, happening there. One other question that I had, let's say, do you ever deem a patient, you know, in pancreatic cancer, we talk about borderline resectable patients and using a neoadjuvant approach to make them resectable. And and we had talked about, uh, uh, there was that, there was a German cooperative group study where they kind of sort of included some borderline resectable patients with concurrent chemo radiation in our last episode. But I just wanted to get your thoughts. If you have a patient that's quote unquote borderline resectable with a central lymph node, do you, as a surgeon, think, you know, and from your perspective, should we push towards definitive chemo radiation or do we still consider an induction approach in those individuals? So you mean for somebody where they might be a borderline candidate for surgery? Um, I mean, I think like in all these scenarios that a lot of this should be like not something we decide for the patient, but something that the patient helps to decide about, you know, that you just have to be like, this is the situation, you know, this is what you can expect with the surgery. This is uh, what's known, what's not known. These are the potential risks, the, the potential impact on your quality of life and all those things. I mean, in most cases, patients will have like a strong opinion, you know, those borderline patients. Uh, some borderline patients will be like, no, that sounds terrible. And I would feel so much better not to have surgery. And there are definitely patients who are vice versa. Like, I can't stand the thought of it being in there. I mean, it's going to torture me every single day. I, the risks are definitely, you know, worth it for me, you know? And I mean, it almost is like the worst is a patient who doesn't want to have the surgery and then, you know, but because of external pressures, like from family or whatever, ends up agreeing to have a surgery, they're practically like jinxed. Uh, you know, someone who forces themselves to have a surgery will just have so much regret post up will not do like the, you know, have the motivation to do all the work to do the recovery and things like that. So a lot of times in any scenario with a, with a borderline patient, I really feel like they need to just have all the information from us, but then ultimately make the decision. Um, 
for, you know, whether or not I would recommend an induction therapy in any situation to try to downstage it to make it like a better surgery. I almost never do that because it all, even if it shrinks the tumor, it almost never changes the scenario that made it like a dangerous operation in the first place. Like, you know, even when you're talking about like, I mean, I've had to do pneumonectomies for, you know, a uh, uh, a lymph node metastasis, you know, like where the tumor wasn't even bad, but it's like a bad lymph node metastasis. And even after induction therapy, even if it shrinks, it's like the critical part doesn't change, which is that it's invading like the main PA or whatever. Um, one thing to just keep in mind, you know, it, you know, someone might think that after a tumor shrank, um, like in this case, uh, based on the imaging, it looked like there was chest wall invasion, but maybe they got induction therapy and ended up not needing a chest wall um, resection. But you can't know for sure that that's because of the induction therapy, because actually, uh, whenever I get those reports that say like, oh, could be invading the chest wall or whatever, um, I always tell the patient, like, we won't know till the time of the surgery, because um, there are times where it looks like that, but you go in. And first of all, the first investigation should be, um, well, you just move it a little bit. And sometimes it just like wiggles. And then what you're supposed to do is not just do a chest wall resection. I mean, you may consider doing what we call an extra pleural dissection. So you come way out at the margin where the pleura is normal, you incise the pleura and you see if you can mobilize it off of the chest wall because it may be invading the parietal pleura, but not the actual chest wall. Yes, in the cases where you go in and it's like, stocked in and not moving there, then you might have to just do your chest wall resection. But I, I, I always tell the patients that it's not like a hundred percent. And so I also would not make a decision of induction therapy just based on that. Another tricky thing is that a lot of, I've noticed this, but a lot of radiology reports will talk about like, uh, lymph carcinomatosis or, you know, like I definitely always there are definitely times where we've looked inside and then gotten samples and confirmed that it was not the case. So, you know, all those things um, are suggestions of things that you need to investigate, but I would never just like take it for face value um, and make, make decisions just based on that. And, and a patient, last question I have, sorry, a, a patient who has chest wall invasion, we, and we see this a lot and, you know, we have somebody referred to us in Menot Clinic. It's like they have chest wall invasion do you do you often not recommend an induction approach in those situations because you don't think you're going to really change your surgical approach all that much? Well, what I think is that in the end, it, uh, I, I think probably induction will be important, but not be for the surgery. I mean, that it's mostly it's important because um, those patients probably need induction therapy, like need neo-systemic therapy. You know, like those are the patients who have more advanced disease who overall their survival is still not that good. You know, the overall five-year survival. And so probably they do need more treatment than what we're giving them. So, you know, whether or not it's neo-adjuvant or adjuvant, you know, those people probably do need you know, more treatment than just the surgery because they have more advanced disease. But I wouldn't necessarily do it for the purpose of like changing the operation. So patients are, are deemed borderline resectable in pancreatic cancer. Is that term still applicable then to lung cancer? Because it sounds like from what you're saying, it's you kind of know whether the person's going to be a, a, a surgical candidate even before that discussion of induction chemotherapy is brought up. Yeah, so the borderline can mean anything. It can be borderline for technical reasons, physiologic reasons. Um, and there are a lot of times where essentially part of the surgery is exploratory. Um, and so you just have to have all the information that you need to be able to make and enough counseling with the patient so that, you know, it's like a 
choose your own adventure situation where you go in the OR and then you have to ultimately make the decision. But that means you need to have prepared all information for every scenario ahead of time. So you mentioned, uh, you know, new adjuvant versus adjuvant therapy. Um, if you were going to recommend adjuvant therapy for a patient after their surgery, uh, is there a general time frame uh, after surgery where it's safe to start that? Or is it kind of different depending on what's done in the operation? It, a little bit depends on the operation. You know, if a patient, for example, has a complication like an empyema or uh, a prolonged air leak, you know, like let's say the air leak result, it takes like three weeks for it to resolve. Probably not a good idea to like start chemotherapy after four weeks. But if they had a smooth recovery, um, then I would I usually say after a month is, is okay. Um, you know, there's uh, uh, different parts of different lobes where you might have more or less concern even for like uh, delay wound healing problems. So, you know, for example, someone who had the middle lobectomy, I mean, that heals really well. It's like, it, it has like the upper and lower lobes being like bandages everywhere. You know, it's like so protected. But like, if you do a lower lobectomy, you know, you've got the little bronchial stump just sticking out there and all of gravity pulling like all the mucus to sit right there uh, and potentially like brew an infection or something like that. So my, my concern might be a little bit higher depending on patient-specific issues, um, but I'm generally okay with it after one month. Um, and then in, in the scenario of people who had like post-operative complications, it might be might be longer. But we always have it in mind that, you know, the longer you wait, potentially the benefit is less. You know, obviously you don't want to wait more than two months, but. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I, I think that's critical as a new fellow, I remember, and I had at the VA and I would have somebody who needed adjuvant therapy for their lung cancer Every single time I would be like, I have no idea when I can give you adjuvant chemotherapy. So this is this is really helpful to, to, to get a, get an idea that a general time frame, a month, if they had no post-operative complications, it's different if they had a persistent air leak or some infection and things like that. But that is also, you know, for traditional chemotherapy. And now, like, you know, potentially immunotherapy the next day might be okay, you know, because it's not associated any with any wound healing problems. So, again, I mean, it's like crazy. Everything is changing. Um, but, yeah, I think that's why it's so important to have, like, communication. I love it when people call me to ask me those things to either be like, no, don't do that, or be like, yeah, totally fine with me, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I think I think especially because everything is changing, it's just so awesome for us to all be, like, one group and be able to talk to each other. We completely agree. And, you know, I, again, this is why it's so important for us to have conversations like this. So we understand because when we're all super busy, uh, you know, and, and we're the same. We don't necessarily always delve into the whys of why we're making decisions the way that we do, but taking opportunities like this to delve into this a little bit deeper is so insightful for everyone. So thank you so much for being here today. Cool. Thanks so much for inviting me. Of course. Guys, any last thoughts uh, for Dr. Yanagawa? Uh, just, just again, you know, uh, extending our thanks. I mean, now, now we've talked to pulmonary, talked to radiation oncology and thoracic surgery. Now we have our home turf next, which is, a, which is a medical oncologist after we we talked about some of the basics. So thank you so much again. I learned a whole lot from this conversation and, you know, really it puts it into, you know, after three years of going to these thoracic tumor boards, I still now come away with a much better understanding of what's going on. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you again for being here. Just a just really, really good discussion. So that was fantastic. Great. Well, good luck with all the stuff you're doing. So amazing that you're doing this. So um, I'll try to check in for sure. Thank you so much. Well, listeners, until next time, we'll see you later. See you later. Peace.